If you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn in them to the book of 2 Kings as we continue to work our way through this uh, section of Scripture, particularly as it has reference to the prophet Elisha, just events that uh, happened during his lifetime that he had an influence over and that he was a part of. And uh, I'm going to read actually all of chapter 7. We read the first two verses last week and made a couple comments, but we just need to get the whole context of this um, in our heads and our hearts as we open up this text. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, a say of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two says of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king lead, lay, leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate. And they said to each other, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, then we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and the horses and the sound of a great army so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt, to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went back and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off the things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. For if we are silent and wait until the morning, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told them within the king's household. And the king arose in the night and said to his servants, I'll tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we'll take them alive and go into the city." One of his servants said, Oh, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a say of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two says of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. When the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said, when the king came down to him. For when the 
Son of man had said to the king, two seas of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a say of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria. The captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. Last week, we focused our attention on a particular day in the life of the citizens of Samaria. And to be sure, it was the culmination of many days. We don't know how many days, but certainly many days of siege. But it all culminated in a particular day which was just full of so much tragedy. We reflected on the king's experience of that day, and he had reached the limit to the point where he said, someone's going to die. And he determined to cut off Elisha's head. And as for his view of God, he said, why should I wait for him any longer? On that same day, two mothers had reached the culmination of their hunger pains and had decided that they would in turn eat their children. In another part of the city, on that same day, Elisha was gathered in his home with a few of the elders and who knows what they were doing, we're not told. But also at that day, at the end of the day, the same day, the captain of the guard, who had long since given up any hope in the word of God, or in the God of the word, was confronted by the truth of that word through the prophet Elisha. And then last but not least, we pick up the parts of that day before we go to the next day with four lepers who have been outside the gate, and they too are experiencing the reality of that siege on that same day, and they get into a conversation between themselves about how they're going to handle things. And he thinks, that what a day that must have been. And that was only four or five people and their response to that particular day. But as many of us know, a single day can literally bring us to our knees. It can bring us to the end of ourselves. And what a horrible world this would be if that was all that we ever faced, if there was never any hope of another day, never any reality that the next day might be better, if all our days were just simply filled with such tragic events as those. But loved ones, as we have said again and again, God is real and that changes everything. And the scripture divide, describes the next day, the chronological next day. Now what happens on that day is not always what happens in our lives the very next day, but down the road it is always true of our lives. And certainly when the Lord comes back and we are caught up together to meet him and we come back to the earth with him, we will realize that all these days have found their perfection in Christ alone. But on this particular day, we realize that just as the day of Siege and trouble was in the hand of the Lord, so this day of salvation is also in the hand of the Lord. And even as the prophet, or as the psalmist said at the next verse that Pastor Barry read, he said, I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Isn't that the way our heart should be? I believed, even when I acknowledged that this was an awful day. So there's three things that I really want us to reflect on as we go through this text. Three things that I think are helpful. One is the work of the Lord. The second is the word of the Lord. And the third is the good news from the Lord to us. So the first is simply that we learn to set our hearts and minds on the work of the Lord. As we come to these first verses from verses 3 to 11, what they do is they all tie in or they, 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 they come to their culmination in the work of the Lord that's described in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 7. This becomes clear as you think about the structure of the Bible. The, the Word of God is not just randomly thrown together stories. It is, it is incredible literature. 
just as you can read poems and you can find structure in those poems, you can read Shakespeare and you can find structure to his plays. There is literary structure that is everywhere in the word of God and it's no different here. And the structure in verses three to 11 is around the gate. It begins with four lepers that are at the gate and then they go out and do their bit and at the very center of what they do is some word about God, which reminds us that's the important thing. And then they end up back at the gate in verse 11. And as these uh, leg, uh, 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 lepers are at the gate, you begin to try and process what their world would have, might have been like. The world in those days was not a good world for beggars at the best of times. Beggars were outcasts. They often lived outside of the city. They made their living most often through begging. I can't imagine the hardships that they would have faced as a city was under siege and in famine that would have made their task of getting day-to-day -day food even more difficult. As the people would have had barely enough to eat on their own, how would they ever be generous to somebody else? And so their life would have become more and more and more precarious with each passing day. One of the things that's fascinating is that sort of a, a by thing to think about is that you remember when we were talking about Naaman, we referred to the passage of Scripture where Jesus reflects back on the days of Naaman. And as he's reflecting back on the days of Naaman in condemnation of the lack of belief of the people in Nazareth, he says, there were many lepers in Elisha's day. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And as I thought about that, Jesus was very much aware of history. He was very much aware of what took place hundreds of years earlier in Samaria when there were a bunch of lepers, but only one was healed. And I wonder, as we reflect on Naaman, that would have been a well-known healing. After all, Naaman was ahead of the Syrian army. Naaman came with this massive entourage. They would have tramped their way uh, through the city to find Elisha. They would have come to Elisha's house. Remember, he was sitting in his house. They would have stood outside the door and proclaimed why they had come. They would have gone down to the River Jordan. There would have been this, this incredible event that took place in the River Jordan. Then they would have come back to Elisha's house. And here he would have been cleansed. And no doubt some reporter from the Samaria Chronicle would have written that up and sent that up all around the city. And so this would not have been a secret event. And yet we still have four lepers. None of them was cleansed. Why? Because of lack of faith. So even as they heard this, did they doubt the power of God? Did they doubt that God would be concerned about them and heal them as well? Nonetheless, we have four lepers that are gathered outside of the city gate. Like the king and the mothers, they too have apparently come to the end. It's pretty clear they're outside the gate because they say, well, if we go into the city, we're going to die. If we stay here, we're going to die. And if we go to the Syrians, we've got, I don't know, 80-40, no, 80-20, 60-40 chance we're going to die, but they may, may be merciful to us. So it's pretty apparent they were outside the city because one of the things is they would have to go to the guards at night. They closed the city gates in these, in these cities to present, prevent against attacks in the night. And it's almost impossible to ever get a city gate to be opened in the night back in those days. And so there's really little chance that they would even get back into the city had they asked. But they've got this other option as they say, stay here and die or let's go to the Syrians and maybe they'll be merciful to us. Certain death, possible death. And so at twilight, they commit themselves into the hands of the Syrians, or so they thought. 
And they make their way to the Syrian camp and it says, when they came to the camp's edge, they discovered that there was not a single man there. Not what they had expected at all. And they must have thought, where, where did everyone go? What's happened? Why is this place deserted? But you find the explanation, don't you, in verses 6 to 7. It is the explanation of why there wasn't a single man in the camp. Now, nobody else knew this. This is inserted after the fact. This is an explanation describing the events that the king didn't know, Elisha didn't know, uh, the, the four beggars didn't know, but God knew, and he inserted in there so we would understand that his work was behind his word in this particular text. Again, this was certainly not something that these four beggars came up with. They simply went back to the city and said, hey, listen, we went to the camp and there's no one there. They didn't tell him there's no one there because God had caused the Syrians to hear something and they all took off. But this verse explains in part how one day can be disastrous and the next day can be amazing. There's this phrase that starts verses six to seven, for the Lord. Those are really important words to just embed in your heart and your head and think about a little bit. For the Lord. It's a recognition of the work of God in our day-to-day lives, even though we might not be aware of it. It's a recognition that God is behind the difficult days and God is behind the days of incredible transformation. When you start a day or when you end a day, do you reflect on that day by saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. This is a day that God is in charge of, that God is in control of, that God is guiding the affairs of it, good or bad. Again, these are after-the-fact verses, verses 6 to 7, and after-the-fact explanation. Nobody knew what God had done. And isn't this often the way of God in our world and in our lives? We pray. We see something turn around. We don't see the direct intervention of God, the direct involvement of God, but something clearly has happened, something clearly has changed. What do we think when that takes place in our hearts and minds? What do we think when we all of a sudden sign a deal and it's accepted? What do we think when we've been trying to get a certain appointment at a certain place and we haven't and haven't and haven't and all of a sudden we do? Do we ever think that, oh God, I prayed. You must have intervened in some way. Thank you for intervening in my life. So even if we can't see the direct hand of God, loved ones, know that God is at work in your days, every one of your days. And it is entirely appropriate at the beginning of a day to begin by saying, God, I know you're involved in my life today. I thank you for that involvement. I anticipate what you might do in my life today. And I thank you for the way that you care for me, guide me, protect me. No matter what I face, Lord, I trust you are in my day. Or at the end of the day, as you fall asleep, saying, Lord, I thank you for your hand of the Lord or for your hand that was at work in my life. I couldn't see evidence of it all the time, but I know you were at work. And a recognition, an acknowledgement that God is not a distant God. That God is, in fact, concerned about and involved in even the smallest details of our life. And so what did they say about for the Lord? Well, it says, For the Lord caused the Syrian camp to hear the sound of chariots, horses, and a great army. The Lord caused them to hear a sound. 
Nobody else heard that sound. It wasn't an external sound. It's like the voice that Paul heard on the road to Damascus. He heard it, but no one else heard what God had said to Paul. This is a supernatural work of God where he infused or spoke into the hearts and lives or the minds of those Syrian men and freaked them out. It says, the Armenians said to each other, the king of Israel must have hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to attack us. How did they think that? Well, because God put it in their head. So they have gotten up and fled at twilight. Notice twilight. Almost at the same time when the lepers determined that they're going to go out to the camp, at the same time God just does something miraculous in the minds of this vast army. They fled, abandoning their tents, horses, and donkeys. The camp was intact and they had fled for their lives. This was a supernatural deception of God. The Lord caused this to happen. These are, these are not random accounts. Some of you may be familiar with um, the his, history of Israel. And there's a, there's a part of Israel's history in 1967, which is the Six-Day War. It is an incredible um, uh, uh, war that took place be, between Israel and all the enemies that surrounded them. And the number of miracles or miraculous happenings of that day, um, none of them directly attributed to God, but many of them saying God must have done this is incredible. For instance, on day two of the Six-Day War in 1967, after the Egyptian minister of defense had heard about a particular defeat in another area, he inexplicably ordered all his units in the Sinai to retreat to the west bank of the Suez Canal. Some members of the Egyptian army offered the Israelis initial resistance, but soon they all fled their positions, leaving their heavy equipment behind. Israel ground troops advancing into the Sinai find numerous Egyptian positions simply abandoned, with tanks and heavy armor left in perfect condition. They acquired so much abandoned Egyptian armor that after the war they had enough to outfit five new brigades. It's never directly attributed to the Lord causing the Egyptian leader to make that command. But I bet heaven will reveal that God did just that. See, what's impossible um, or what's possible for God cannot be measured in terms of what we can conceive of. And while what happened to the Egyptians on the Six-Day War has been called a miracle, they don't actually have a verse 6 and 7 that says the Lord caused the Egyptian commander to do this. But it's clear that the hand of God was at work. And so we're not left in the dark about the ways of the Lord in this particular text, thankfully. We're not left in the dark because I think God wants us to, in this instance, make a connection that is true in every instance, that the word of God will always be accomplished. Always. And the way that the word of God is accomplished is through the work of God. That God will always bring to pass the things that he speaks. He will always fulfill the promises that he makes. It's probably sometime later that maybe one of the Syrians uh, come back, came, came back on business and or who knows what, into the town of Samaria. And he says, hey, did you guys remember that bizarre thing that happened two years ago when our army just fled? Do you know what happened? Like, we were talking about this the other day. All our guys heard, did you guys hire the kings of the Hittites and the Egyptians? Like, what are you talking about? He said, no, we all, we all heard it. We, we heard them. And maybe that's how they found out what God had actually done that day. We might not always be able to attribute directly something to the work of God. 
But by faith, we need to believe that God's work will always accomplish his word. Always. And so these four lepers couldn't believe their good fortune. They didn't know why they stumbled across, uh, across this sort of lottery. Um, but they went first to one tent, plundered it. Went to a second tent, plundered it. Went to a third tent and thought of themselves again. We're about to plunder it. And then thought of themselves again and said, well, well if we do this um, and we get caught, we're going to be in big trouble. Their conscience got the better of them, and so they said, we need to share this good news. I, I love that phrase. We'll come back to that in a minute. We need to tell the good news. We can't keep this to ourselves. And so here again, we have just, which is woven through Second Kings, four men of whom we don't know their names. So much that is accomplished in the lives of the people of Israel throughout the book of 2 Kings is accomplished because unnamed people act. Unnamed people serve. Unnamed people commit to doing something. And so here they determined to share this jackpot with the king's household. Let's go and tell the king. And so they get to the gate and they call out to the city's gatekeeper about what they had found. They said, we went to the Syrian camp. No one was there, no human sounds. There was nothing but tethered horses and donkeys and the tents were intact. This wasn't a withdrawal. This was a full-on retreat. They just abandoned everything and took off for home. So they relay this good news to the gatekeepers, how God, well, they didn't attribute it to God, but just how something had happened and the camp was vacant. It's amazing how God is able to bring incredible turnaround in our lives in a single day. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Or as the psalmist said, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Loved ones, look for the Lord in your days. Believe that the Lord is at work in your days. Know that God will bring about his word in your days. The second thing is, not only are we to set our eyes on the work of the Lord and contemplate his power and his might and his ability to accomplish what he says he'll do, but we ought to set our faith on the word of the Lord as well. It's really, this, this is so important that we get this and that we grow in this. All that's described in these verses goes back to what Elisha spoke in verse 1 of chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. The word of God is dominant throughout this text. Everything that happens in this text is a direct result of the spoken word of the Lord. It's amazing, though, that good news sometimes takes time to sink in. Even the word of the Lord takes time to sink in. So often, the word of God is so much beyond our comprehension that we simply can't grasp it. It's too good to be true. I was thinking of this. I think it's in the study notes of the whole church that's gathered around. They're gathered together, and they're praying for Peter because Peter has been taken prisoner, and they're going to lop his head off. And so they're all gathered in their house and they're, they're praying. And all of a sudden an angel comes and, and delivers Peter from jail, takes him out of the jail and out of the city gates. And then Peter makes his way to the house and he knocks on the door. And the girl shocked and says, no, it can't be you. And he goes back in and tells the people that are praying, he says, no, no, it can't be Peter. 
They're, they're praying for him to be released, released. When he is released, they don't believe it. Isn't that how we sometimes are in our own faith? Clearly, the king thought he was being duped. He was a student of warfare. Most kings in those days were. He knew all the strategies of different armies and outcomes of different battles, and he probably reflected a little bit on the battle that happened in Ai back in the book of Joshua, where Ai used this same tactic. So the king said, nope, you're not going to fool me. We're not going to do anything. But again, notice, notice an unnamed servant. Courageous, polite. If he hadn't spoke up, this good news likely would have fallen on deaf ears. But he said to the king, please, the approach is so wonderful. Please, please, king, let messengers take five of the horses that are left in the city. The messengers will be like the whole multitude of Israelites who will die, so let's send them and see. Oh, king, what do we have to lose? I hope that you pray regularly for those in authority over us. It's a command of Scripture. We're reminded again and again and again that we are to pray for those in authority over us. But do you ever pray for the unnamed servants that influence those in authority over us? I think that's a great way for us to pray. Naaman was saved from a disastrous decision because his servants spoke up and said, Naaman, Naaman, listen, this is a good thing. Go in the Jordan and dip seven times. What have you got to lose? And here we have again unnamed servants in the king's household who come to the king and say, oh, king, 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 think, think this through. What have we got to lose? Let's take this course of action. Be in prayer for those that influence our leaders. I know that I am so thankful for God who surrounds me. I can be pig-headed. I can have a course in mind. I can think this is the only way to go. And I don't see what others see. And I'm so thankful when they have the courage to come and say to me, Paul, think about this. So pray for the unnamed servants that God has placed all over this country and this world that have the ear of those that are in authority. So sure enough, the report was true. The king sent messengers out to the Syrian army. They saw that the whole way was littered with clothes and equipment that the Syrians had thrown off in their haste. That must have been a sight, eh? Imagine following the trail of these guys from the city down to the Jordan River. There was nothing but just scattered armor and scattered clothing. They had just stripped down to the bare essentials so they could go faster. They were that freaked out by what God had placed in their head. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Verses 17 and on are significant. Verses 16 and on are significant. There's still the matter of the word of God. Recall Elisha's declaration in verses 1 and 2. Who could forget it? This day, tomorrow, there will be food on our shelves. This day, tomorrow, you will see it, but you will not eat of it. Three times the point is made that this came about in fulfillment to the word of God spoken by Elisha. In verse 16, all of this happened according to the word of the Lord. 
in verse 17, just as the man of God had predicted. In verse 18, when the man of God said. All of this was because God had spoken and his word will come to pass. In verse 17, the captain saw with his own eyes but didn't see any of it, just as, or didn't eat any of it, just as Elisha had prophesied. You will see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. And that happened to him in the gateway that he died. And God's word is sure, it is true. It will be accomplished. Never, ever, ever take the word of God lightly. Never mock it. Never have a sarcastic approach to the word of God. God's word will always accomplish what he says it will accomplish. God's word will always be fulfilled, even if it takes hundreds of years, yea, even thousands of years. One day we will see the unfolding of God's word and we will say, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. For some time I've continued to remind myself in particular of some things around God's word in Proverbs 6. I don't know why this caught my attention months ago, but it did, and it's on my computer at home now, and I reflect on it fairly often in my head. Proverbs 6, 20 to 23. My son, keep your father's commandments and don't forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them around your heart. What he's saying is, is take the word of God and, and wrap it to your heart. Let your thoughts and your, your will and your fears and your anxieties, all of that, let, let the word of God constrain them, filter them. Hang them around your neck. I don't wear anything around my, well, I wear a tie. Uh, I remember the funniest thing once when I was in the paper cutter room and Pastor Lauren used to be a pastor here, was in there and I just popped in and he had bent over and he had, his tie had got in the paper cutter and he had just cut the end of his tie off. It's the funniest thing. The reason I say that is because sometimes when you wear something around your neck, you're aware of it. You, you, you bend forward and it clinks on the desk or you, you walk by a, a mirror and you, you see that pendant that's around your neck. It's, it's a constant reminder to you. And so he says, tie the words of God around your neck. And then this, when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down to sleep, they will protect you. When you get up in the morning, they will talk to you. We have to love the word of God. Let it constrain us. Let it direct us. Let it protect us. Let it guide us. And let it speak to us. And then finally, just one last reflection. Today is a day of good news. I couldn't get off that phrase for a number of hours this week just sat there reflecting on it in context of the story as the beggars had found all this treasure. And they say to us, we got to go to the king. We got we to gotta tell him about this. Today is a day of good news. And why I was reflecting on it, because it reminded me of a far greater good news than what those, those leopards had discovered. There's a far greater deliverance that has been prophesied for us starts as early as Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, is woven through the prophecies of Isaiah and various places. It reminds us that 
all humanity is under siege. We're under the siege of sin. We're constrained by sin. We're held captive by sin. We have only death to look forward to. It's real. And its effect on us is real and it's debilitating. And we can say if we stay in our sin, and I I can assure you that if you stay in your sin, you will certainly die. But if we go to God, well, perhaps we might find mercy. Well, no, this is not like the Syrian army. When you go to God, you will find mercy. It's incredible good news. Think about these four lepers reasoning amongst themselves. If we go to the city, we're going to face certain death. It's only a matter of time. If we, go, if we stay here, we're going to die. And if we go to the Syrians, well, we might die. I can tell you, if you remain in your sins, you face certain death. But if you go to God, you will receive mercy beyond your wildest imagination. Take a chance on the word of God. That's what I would say. Take a chance on the God of the word. What have you got to lose? The Bible is full of just some beautiful illustrations. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Or Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or Paul says to the Ephesians Christians as he writes them, he says, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, but God who is rich in mercy has saved you. Let me tell you about the God that you find when you turn to God. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and rich in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our offenses. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For we know what we are made of, remembering that we are but dust. And oh, the treasures, the treasures that await when you turn to God. The beggars went into the Syrian camp and found earthly treasures. When you go to find when you go to God's camp, you will find treasures beyond your wildest imagination. You'll find treasures for this world and treasure for the world to come. You'll find all the blessings and the wonderful inheritance of a world to come, yours through Christ Jesus. Sometimes we might think, well, my fate is in my own hands. Well, it's not, because God has already worked on your behalf. It's amazing what God has done. Just as he caused the Syrian army to flee, Christ has also conquered death. And he's conquered our enemies. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You will find no army when you come to God. Only grace. Only forgiveness. Only riches. Only compassion. Maybe you're a little like the king here this morning or you're listening and you think it's too good to be true. You think there's some trap. You think there's some trick to it. Well, let me be an unnamed servant. Go and see for yourself. Leave your captivity. Go to God and see if he is not gracious and merciful and compassionate towards you.
And as I say, when you turn to Christ and go into his camp, you will find all the riches you could ever have imagined and then exponentially more. Today is a day of good news. As Paul says, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I urge you, don't be like the captain. Don't be like the captain who disregards the word, who said, no, that word is not good for me. No, I don't believe that word. No, God can't do that for me. No, he can and he will. Trust him. Set aside your pride. Set aside your fear. Set aside your anxiety. And in faith, go to God. And you will find grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation and riches. And for those of us who have found that, we can also learn from the beggars. They originally found all this riches, all this glory, all this wealth, and what did they do? They take it and they hit it. What have you done with the riches that Christ has given you? Oh, that we could be like the beggars and say, I can't keep this to myself. This is a day of good news. This is a day that I need to share others of what is available for them if they but leave the city and go out to the camp. Oh, may God work in our hearts in such a way that we will be like those beggars who said, I can't keep this to myself. Today is a day of good news for my spouse, for my children, for my grandchildren, for my neighbor, for the person I go to school with. Today is a day of good news. Father, we come before you today and we're thankful for this text because how you worked in the lives of these people in this city so many hundreds of years ago has been recorded for us as an example to us to help us and to teach us and to guide us as we face the kind of days that we face in these times in which we live. Father, would you impress upon us again the truthfulness of your word and the effectiveness of your word? May you remind us that no matter how your word might seem bizarre to us or impossible to us, your work in this situation confirms that nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing is impossible for you. Would you give us confidence in your word, Father, to shape our lives by it, to help it constrain our lives, that we won't be conformed to the world around us, but rather we will be transformed by the word of God. And Father, what good news it is that you have defeated our enemies. You have scattered them. You have conquered them. And there are weights for us, not only mercy and compassion should we turn to you, but riches and wealth and inheritance beyond our wildest imaginations. Oh, Father, if some are outside of the camp right now, would you draw them to yourself, I pray. And may we leave here singing that Christmas song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.